Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back in the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we conclude our series, Under Pressure. So turning your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 14, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Living Humbly Before God. one bring a letter written to suffering Christians to a close? Indeed, what does one say to Christians who are going through a great many difficulties, and after the letter has been read to their churches, the difficulties just carry on? Of course, these were not the only believers to have experienced that. You know, many a believer has cried out to God during hardships, and and God has been there, but the hardships weren't taken away. It is a troublesome myth, propagated by some that are both unwise and dangerous. That all you need to do is have the right kind of faith and then all your troubles simply disappear. I mean, read through the list of Hebrews 11, that wonderful chapter about the heroes of the faith and those that have gone before us. Do you remember verses 35 to 38, what it taught about those remarkable men and women? You know, the passage says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. You know, so much for just pray about it and all your troubles will just go away and you're going to be rich and disease-free and generally doing quite well. Those who teach such myths destroy the faith of many. It's just not true. And of course, a careful study of 1 Peter, as we have done, is going to disabuse us of all such notions. And furthermore, how quickly we forget that our Lord and Savior was a man of sorrows, much acquainted with grief. He was so disfigured that men hid their faces from him. He was despised and rejected. We esteemed him not. Did we think that when Peter wrote 1 Peter 2, verse 21, that we've been called to follow in Christ's steps, that in the end, we would not have to walk the road of suffering. Have we, in spite of the plain testimony of Scripture, come to the opposite, the lie, that we will live in peace and tranquility? And are we shocked when that lie is found to be what it truly was, a lie? And so as Peter seeks to close out this very important letter to the churches, he leaves his readers with three important imperatives, that is, commands. The first is the command to be humble. The second is to be watchful, and the last is to resist the devil. And after Peter has given the last command, he gives a promise. We'll get to that. So let's take the commands one at a time. We begin with 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know, Peter has already directed Christian pastors to be humble, And he's warned them that God opposes the proud. Now Peter moves from humility that's demanded of us in relationship to one another, now to a humility that's demanded of us in relation to God. Humble yourself before God. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And the fact that Peter begins with the word, therefore, that's significant. He's been quoting Proverbs that God opposes the proud. And therefore, if we are to be humble, we have to humble ourselves before God, and we're going to have to acknowledge God's wisdom in all the events of our lives. See, there are all manner of unexpected events in every life, but we'll have to accept that God's sovereign over those things. 
I know the suffering that believers sometimes go through may lead to questions about God's dealings. But are we really wiser than he? Do we really understand what's required for the best possible eternity? Or should we humble ourselves and admit that God knows better than we do? Humble yourself before God. Do it. Stop the arrogant attitudes. Know who knows best about your life. And with that command comes a promise. And by the way, you might want to take note of that. So many of the commands in the Bible are connected to promises. Indeed, it is the promises that often give us the ammunition that's necessary to obey the commands. And what's the promise here? Well, it's simply that at the proper time or in the time when God deems it best, he will exalt you. Now, that exalting, well, it can happen in this life or in the life to come. You know, if it happens in this life, we can believe that God will deliver us from our enemies, or God may choose to increase our wisdom as we go through difficult times, or he may give us a deeper communion with himself. Sometimes he even increases the footprint of our ministries giving us opportunities to reach more people than ever before because of what we've suffered. But of course, always, 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 God will exalt us in eternity. We may not know it yet, but faithfulness in the face of suffering bears an eternal reward. And given that reality, knowing those things are true, we need to humble ourselves before God. Stop thrashing about. Stop blaming. Stop trying to counsel God on how you think he should go about his business. Humble yourself, accept his wisdom. And we mustn't pass verse 7 by. Cast your anxieties on him. And to cast means to throw. Take everything about which you're deeply worried and throw it onto the Lord. All your concerns, all the things about tomorrow, about which you're very anxious right now all the possible negative scenarios that keep going back and forth in your mind, the things that keep you from sleeping at night, say to the Lord, I can't control these things. You can. And notice that verse 7 also contains a promise. He cares for you. He's deeply concerned for you. He loves you. You're always on God's mind. He's always arranging all things for your long-term good. And so we have the first command from Peter, humble yourself, accept God's wisdom as you pass through the fire of suffering. Second, we come to verse 8, that we must be aware of the devil or Satan. So let's read the verse. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. See, the command is for spiritual watchfulness, and it's an important word. Anyone who faces danger should be advised of the kind of danger they are facing. And as you know, that's why we have not just words of warning, but things that we must do when the danger comes. You know, I never fly off into the air in an airplane without first receiving a safety demonstration. I never drive down the road without signs in various locations warning me of something of which I should take notice. When I was a student in school, we had repeated fire drills. So much of life we're told, be careful. There are dangers around you. That doesn't make us paranoid. It makes us what Peter describes as sober-minded. We're under no illusions. We know that this world is not our friend. We also know that we have an ancient enemy who is more powerful than we and whose wisdom is surely greater than ours. To be watchful means to be spiritually alert. To be watchful means stay awake. Understand the situation you're in. You are at war. I suppose the opposite of this would be to be a complacent Christian who doesn't recognize warfare. 
neither do they take the work of the devil into account. And the Greek word is the word diabolos, from which we get our English word diabolical. It means that this enemy, this spiritual being, is always seeking to do us harm, to do us evil. He has many means to accomplish that. Of course, the people who originally received the letter from 1 Peter must have known that it was the devil who had inspired the kind of hatred they were now feeling against themselves from the wider community. But in order to be watchful, Christians must be aware of the kinds of things that are inspired both by the devil and his legion of angels whom we call demons. Revelation 2 verse 10, it was Jesus speaking to the church in Smyrna. And there Jesus says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. And all over the world today, the devil's inspiring governments to enact laws limiting Christian freedoms, as well as making our activity illegal. But the devil also does other things. First John tells us that, you know, false prophets, false teachers are inspired by the devil. They come to deceive gullible Christians so that they might follow them. And I find that fascinating. I ran into someone the other day. He says he listens to me daily. He also listens along with a relative. But the relative, he said, also listens to the Word of Faith teachers at the same time. They say, I'm good. The Word of Faith teachers are good as well. They take no concern whatsoever that we're saying exactly the opposite. And see, here's what the devil does. He loves gullible Christians who do not have a sense of discernment. Now, we could go through a number of other scriptural passages about the activity of Satan. He inspires malicious speech against believers. He fans violent anger, hatred. In the case of demon possession, he even causes bizarre and harmful behavior. And the command to believers is that we must be aware of what's going on. Don't be naive. But let's get personal. I found throughout the length of my ministry that, you know, whenever I've led someone to faith in Christ, the following week, I've received the harshest criticism that I receive in my ministry. I came to the point in time where I learned to expect it, and then I began to pray earnestly about it. I recognized I was a target. That's what Peter says. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Back to the Bible Canada has just wrapped up another fiscal year, and we're beyond grateful for all your gifts toward our year-end target. Your generous donations have helped position this ministry for another successful year of sharing the gospel in every way imaginable. We're so excited for everything we have in store for this next year, so stay tuned. Our match campaign in June was a huge success, but we're humbled to say the amount of the pledges we received for the match campaign exceeded our expectations. Therefore, we're able to extend the campaign into July with an additional $75,000. So dollar for dollar, your gift will be matched up to an additional $75,000 in the month of July. We're so grateful for your gracious support right across Canada. So to double your impact, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The last command from Peter borrows on an earlier one. Peter is still speaking about the devil. He's telling believers that the devil is like a roaring lion. Now, I've got to confess that I know very little about lions and their behavior, but I understand that lions roar in order to stake out their territory. They're roaring to let others know not to intrude on what's theirs. 
I think Peter uses the image of a roaring lion that can be heard, meaning that the believers have entered into his territory. The devil thinks they're intruding. He wants to devour prey. He's looking to destroy. See, I think the image of devouring prey, it's an important image. You know, does Peter think that the devil is going to devour Christians? Well, he would certainly inspire others to harm believers. But Peter also might have in mind here, the devil seeks to devour non-Christians. And he sees Christians in his territory as unacceptable and as a threat. James tells us that we need to resist the devil. And in the end, he will flee from us. All believers need to understand that Christ is protecting his people. We can't be captured by the devil and driven from the safe arms of Jesus. So instead of being told, look, there's a real danger, Satan's looking for someone to devour, and then Peter hears that and gives a command, so run for your lives, pray that he doesn't get one of you. Instead of saying that, look at verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now here we have Peter's third command, resist the devil. Don't be intimidated, take your stand. And given that Peter then adds that we know that the same kinds of suffering his readers are undergoing are also being experienced by other Christians in various places, well, we can be fairly sure that the work of the devil that Peter has in mind here is the work of either influencing lawmakers, making some aspect of the Christian faith illegal, or in a local community, inspiring irrational hatred against Christians. And since believers now know that this is Satan's activity, believers have a job to do. We are to resist the devil. And how's that to be done? Well, Peter uses the phrase, firm in your faith. The idea of being firm means resistance. It means active, determined opposition. And how do we do that? Well, in many ways, we could go to Paul's writings in Ephesians 6, or Jesus teaching on the same subject. Christians resist the devil through prayer, through trusting in God through continuing to preach the gospel, not being intimidated by the threats made against us, focusing on the truths of scripture, not falling for lies. Firm in your faith, says Peter, that's rooted and grounded in the faith. And when Satan roars, he wants Christians to scatter in fear. Get out of my territory, he says. Don't you dare win anyone to Christ. They're my prey. They're my victims. Don't you know by my roaring that I have power to harm you as well? What if we don't listen to him? What if we're unmoved? What if we just simply respond by doubling down on the truth and on holiness as a lifestyle, on continuing to meet together and on prayer and seeking God to guide us and asking God to open doors for more evangelism and more missions? What then? Then as James promises us, it's not we who flee but the devil who eventually flees. And so Peter has given commands. Be humble, be watchful, resist. Now comes the promise. 1 Peter 5, 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Hey, what a wonderful promise to suffering believers. Let's start with the first part of the promise. However long you suffer, it will only be a short time. That is, you will only suffer a little while, then the suffering's over. You know, some of us wonder that this promise just might not be true, and that's because we know some people who've suffered more than a little while. Indeed, I know some where the suffering goes on year after year, and it seems likely to consume their entire lives. 
How then can Peter say, after you've suffered a little while? Now, God normally doesn't tell his children how long their suffering is going to last. And I have no doubt that when Peter says a little while, he's speaking in eternal terms, not from the temporal perspective of our earthly existence today. Take it against the view of eternity. The suffering of the present hour is a little while indeed. So imagine how this view differs from those who don't know Christ. See, many who don't know Christ prefer pleasures in the present moment for a little while, even though they're trading in their eternity for a little while. But after you've suffered a little while, God will do four things. First, he will restore you. That means whatever was broken or destroyed in the present moment will be repaired. It's a promise. Nothing but nothing can eternally be taken from a believer. Stop mourning loss. God will restore all that has been lost. Second, he will confirm you. And the Greek word here means to give you firmness. That is, you won't trust God less because of the suffering you've undergone. Indeed, as you look back on your journey on earth, and as you understand how God has sustained you throughout it, in eternity, you're going to trust God more. Third, he'll strengthen you. That is, having gone through the trials, you are now strong. You may have felt weak in the trials themselves, but not on the opposite end of them. And finally, he will establish you. That is, you'll have a foundation to stand upon for all eternity. Now, all that sounds lovely, but who is it that's making those precious promises? Notice again, Peter says that God who promised these things is the God of all grace. He's the God of infinite and bountiful storehouses, and he loves to give. And furthermore, Peter reminds his ears that the God who made these promises is also the God who called you to his eternal glory. And Peter uses the word calling. See, there it is one last time. You remember back from 1 Peter 2 verse 9. You were called, says Peter, out of darkness into light. It's not you who decided to walk out of darkness. God called you out. And in 1 Peter 2.21, believers are called to follow Jesus into his sufferings. It's not that bad things just happen, and God's sorry it takes place. Rather, God called you to identify with Jesus in sufferings. And so when God calls, what God calls always takes place. God called all those who believe in Jesus. It was God who called all who believe in Jesus to his eternal glory call is not an invitation. It's a divine summons. It's a royal command. It can't be ignored. Hence, with these words that Peter ends his book. However, as is true of a great many New Testament letters, there's a bit of personal stuff at the end. 1 Peter 5, 12 to 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Notice that Peter mentions Silvanus. He's Silas, the missionary companion of Paul on his second and third missionary journeys. We get a sense then that the apostles and their associates were all aware of each other. Silas not only accompanied Paul, he was intimate with Peter as well. And furthermore, Silas was well-known in the wider Christian community. He was known as a faithful man who could be trusted. And Peter is saying that he's sending this letter of 1 Peter to the Christians, and he's giving it to Silas, who's going to deliver it and read it to the churches. 
And the reason they can know that it's an authentic letter and not a fake one is that Silas is the brother delivering it. He's to be trusted. Second, Peter mentions greetings from the church in Rome. The church is called she and Rome is called Babylon. Why is that? Because in the Bible, Babylon became a symbol for all that causes God's people to suffer. I think Peter wanted to emphasize that not only are there believers in Asia who are suffering, believers are suffering in Rome as well. And they're one family. And furthermore, remember, there's a church of Jesus in Rome, in the heart of Babylon, doing business there. Finally, Peter mentions Mark, and he calls him my son. Yep, that's the same Mark that first dropped out of the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. But now Mark is known as a faithful brother. Church tradition teaches us that Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark under the supervision of Peter. And then Peter ends, not with a throwaway line, but a a poignant reminder of the truth that he's been stressing throughout the letter. He says, peace to all who are in Christ. So it's clear that peace can't mean the absence of conflict or the absence of suffering or the removal of all the enemies who hate the gospel. But peace is the peace that truly matters. It's peace with God. It's all barriers between believers and God are taken out of the way. This is the only thing that truly matters. Let the world rage. Let Rome persecute. Let the devil roar. We will not fear, for we are the people of God, purchased by Christ his Son. And through Christ we have peace with God. Peace to all who are in Christ. Thanks so much, John, for your message and for the series. So one last question for this series. Why is peace with God so important as we work through these challenges, daily challenges of life? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I think we need to encourage people to get a sense of is how important peace with God is. And I say this because over the years, I mean, you and I can think about this, Ben, but I've prayed for I don't know how many people for I don't know how many prayer requests. I don't recall someone saying, pray for my peace with God. I mean, pray for my peace with my body, you know, because I'm ill. Pray for my peace with my spouse because we're fighting all the time or pray, you know, we have all these kind of things of unease in our lives. But the most valuable commodity that I might know the reality of God's pleasure in my life, that that's the most important thing and that becomes the subject of our praying, I would that we would uh, grasp a hold of how valuable that is. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We've all been guilty of taking for granted that God's Word is always the perfect Word and available to us at all times. That's why we wanted to share with you an amazing book that will surely lift your thinking towards Bible reading for the better. It's called Before You Open Your Bible by Matt Smethurst. In this insightful resource, you'll find wisdom and guidance on how to approach your Bible with a positive mindset so you get the most out of your time in His Word. And because the message in this book is in sync with the mission of Back to the Bible Canada, we're making this resource available as a gift free during the month of July. Simply call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to request your copy for free 
today.